Hello and welcome back to the Making Things Work podcast, where we discuss all things digital transformation and leadership in the workplace. I'm your host, Duncan Pryor, and I help organizations simplify and transform through the use of technology. And today I'm really delighted to be joined by Tom Goodwin, a digital business transformation specialist, public speaker, and the founder of the consultancy All We Have Is Now, which we'll come on to during the conversation. He's also the author of a book, uh, the second edition of which is uh, relatively recently out called Digital Darwinism. Hi there, Tom. Hello there. Thanks for having me on the show, Duncan. No, no trouble at all. And I'd really like to sort of devote the show to uh, the book and the contents of the book and just to call it Digital Dar- Darwinism. It seems like um, a great idea because it's, it's so relevant to, to what we like to talk about on the podcast. And what I'd like to do is to sort of just go straight in and understand your perspective where we are, uh, Tom, at the, it's the beginning of 2024. You've got sort of businesses, organizations, people, technology, and then there's attempts, um, successes, and otherwise of change and transformation. And we're all here doing stuff right as of now. Lots of things have happened in the past. What Could you just kick off by giving us a sense check of where you see the world is in the, in, uh, from a perspective of uh, all those aspects? Um, I really like that question. Um, I think we're paranoid with the idea that everything is changing incredibly quickly. Um, we're, we're sort of distracted by this idea that the, what we used to know the worked doesn't anymore. Um, and I think what drives a lot of my work and a lot of my thinking is a frustration that that's not really true. I think broadly speaking, we had, you know, pretty impressive technology from the 1960s, you know, to the 2000s. And I think companies did a pretty good job of, of, of working with that. And then I think around about 2004 to 2012, we saw this incredible new sort of paradigm of opportunity created. We saw the smartphone, we saw broadband internet, we saw things like cloud computing. And I think that has been so shocking to the entire world um, the very, very few companies have really got to grips with quite how profound that change has been. And I think what we really have now is lots of companies that are kind of ill-suited for the modern era. You know, they've got very um, traditional technology throughout their business, and they're really struggling to come to terms with the fact that what they need to do is change in a very profound and deep way. And they're not really able to. So what we see is, is lots of sort of um, lots of garnish, you know, people sort of adding AI as a feature into their business, people sort of adding, you know, cloud computing into one of their new divisions, people creating like a new app. Um, and I think this marketplace has this enormous amount of kind of chaos and tension and a sort of buildup of stress because we're unable to deal with the fact that most of our companies are built on foundations of the past and around consumer behaviors of the past. And it's incredibly difficult for them to change in the manner that they need to in order to become suitable for the future. Yeah, that's a, that's a great summary just to sort of get us started. And um, what we're going to try and do today is is uh, um, what your book uh, does so well, I think, is it talks about the, the possibilities of change and actually how it might not be quite so difficult uh, as you think it is, or at least to make a start. But obviously, the situation is um, it's, it's kind of negative. So how, it's the, the, the balancing act is to talk about the art of the possible and the positive side of it, when, of course, what you're doing is it, um, what, we're, what we're trying to achieve in the world is to, is, is to sort of make it a better place, but from a, some, some serious sort of challenges at the moment. So I really like the way the book does that. Let's start by then just 
um, picking up one of the subjects in the book, which is a, a, just a definition of digital transformation, because we get to that at a certain point in the book. And you pick up a definition, which I think you attribute to uh, Tom Newsmore, and, it, and it's just this. And it's just, I'll read it out just so we've, because um, I think it's important. There's a couple of definitions I think we should establish during the course of the chat. So you break it down into two things. Digital is applying the culture, practice, processes, technology of the internet era to respond to people's raised expectations. And then the transformation is the substantiveness of the change made. And I think um, when I read that, it was, a, and this is someone who, who is a digital transformation specialist. I felt it was a bit of a game changer because it, the the main thing it picks out is that the the uh, changes are made not because of some, as you say, some wow technology uh, comes to the surface, but because customers' expectations are raised. And that's what drives companies to do fantastic things for them that are better than they were before. So I just wanted to ask you to pick up on that. I think, um, I mean, it's not my quote, like you say, so I don't want people to, to think I'm, I'm claiming it. Um, yeah. I love a couple of things about it. Um, one, as as you pointed out, it, it's much more about people and their expectations. Um, I think generally speaking, businesses do a terrible job of benchmarking themselves against the companies that they're most alike. You know, so a Volkswagen will be looking at a Ford or a, a Stellantis for a comparison set where they should really be looking at, you know, a Tesla or a BYD. Um, and I think companies take a lot of sort of false reassurance from this idea that because everyone else isn't doing it, they're okay as well. It's much more about consumer expectations. I think people subconsciously know more than we think they do as well. You know, people kind of know what a good app experience should feel like. They kind of know that it's a bit stupid that they have to print out tickets at home. They kind of know it's weird, you know, that when they phone up, the company doesn't seem to know who they are, even though they're phoning from a cell phone with their number attached to their customer profile. So I think it's very much about people. Um, another aspect of the quote I really like is, is it's about culture. Um, and, and finally, for me, and this is more of my own thinking, I, I think it's much more about the depth rather than the sophistication. Um, I think there's a massive misunderstanding in the transformation environment where people think the transformation is looking at a sort of an upcoming roadmap of new technology and then figuring out how to deal with it. Um, you know, so it will be, how do we use voice interfaces? How do we use big data? How do we use AI? How do, how do we use um, 5G technology? I, th I think that's completely the wrong way to go about it. It's much more about knowing when you have a sort of canvas of possibility um, where different technologies are working with other technologies to create a brand new sort of platform for a different type of business. And then knowing the right time to sort of pounce on that array of technology and to sort of completely reorient your company around the sort of parameters of possibility that that, that lays out. So I, I don't think that digital transformation is a constant ongoing process. I think it's a sort of twist and stick thing um, where you wait until the nascent technology is uh, tested enough, you wait until it's understood enough, you wait until you've got a, a, a good business case for it, and then you go all in um, and you, you sort of transform at a really deep and significant level um, you know, what we see now really is sort of companies as a, a sort of mixture of middleware and patches and kludges and fixes, you know, because we've had all of these sort of legacy initiatives and, you know, new CIOs that have a new way of doing things. And what we do is we sort of create a sort of tapestry that doesn't really work. 
I think it needs to be done in a much more significant and infrequent basis, but at a much deeper level. Yes, and you see that. I mean, just on that, the simple example is 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 when you see that on certain when you're using some apps, you're actually at a certain point you go to the next thing, and actually you're on on the company's website. You're not. Yeah. All of the time. I mean, yes. you know, without wanting to sort of pick on people, uh, you know, British Airways would almost be the perfect example of um, a company that's always busy doing stuff that never really works at all. Yeah, you, it's, a, it's, a, it's a perfect example. The book's full of it, full of examples, really, where it it, it can be so difficult with the, the language that's used and this all this uh, technology that comes out all the time, which everyone thinks everyone else has already got and perfected. When an, a, a, your example of the boarding pass, the, the boarding pass on your phone, and then the boarding pass that you print out, it, it, you're just you're just replicating one thing with another. We're not really doing it. You haven't really transformed. It's just the same, really. Um, in some ways, it suddenly gets all it gets even more complicated because if you haven't got if you've run out of power on your phone or something, suddenly you're in a, you're in a you're in a bit of a mess, and it's all suddenly got very complicated when, of course, it shouldn't be. There's a really nice little way to think about it, which is in terms of sort of digitalization versus digital transformation, and I think. If you're taking a kind of process or a structure um, or a, a sort of a scheme and merely applying technology as some sort of lubricant to that, um, then we haven't actually changed anything at all. Like, it, like if, a, if a ticket goes from being something that's a barcode on a website to a barcode that you print out at home, then actually we haven't really changed things that much. You know, the moment the ticket becomes like a permission <clears throat> that's attached to our eyeballs, um, or the ticket becomes um, something within an NFC code in our phone, all of a sudden we're dealing with a different, a different sort of paradigm of, of usability. Yeah, and it's interesting in the definitions that they, we're using the, uh, the sort of culture, practice, processes, and technologies where the, the typical term used is just people, process, and technologies. And the culture idea places a, quite a different emphasis on what transformation is all about. Yeah, it's... Um... It's weird the degree to which business transformation um, is probably more about cultural transformation. Like, like in a weird way, I think people assume that the whole point of it is to have new technology and to have sort of better processes. I think more often than not, it's really about culture. It's about how are people doing their jobs. I think in the the modern age, we kind of, you know, we forget how the way that we are and the way that we make decisions and the sort of spirit that we have, um, these are much more sort of transformative elements than simply the technology that we use. Yeah, we'll come back to the the, the, the culture bit uh, a little bit later because, um, as you say in the book, it's, it's something that it's worth tackling later and there's sort of some of the cultural changes a bit easier and possibly a little bit more organic than a, a typical you know, big, culture you know we need to make culture change uh, as, a, as some sort of standalone uh, activity the other interesting thing that comes up is then is again is your idea of you we need to sort of start talking about failure which is the sort of obviously the the, the as we all know that the best way of learning um, and quite often out there especially with respect to sort of a lot of technology it's all about huge success and we talk about uh, the, the big players in the in the tech sector as, as great examples, and I think you sort of uh, it, it's still kind of difficult not to refer to some of the, the large the larger particularly tech companies because otherwise you'd have to explain all sorts of details about a particular company. 
but it's 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 uh, interesting to think about and it's not those companies and really to think of it as a about learning from failures rather than just lauding huge success yeah i think um i mean the, the reality is and i don't want to sound miserable here that um we are not surrounded by lots of big companies that have transformed brilliantly um if if you really are to think about companies that look radically different today than they did um, before, there's, it's a remarkably small number. And often the companies that have done a really good job are not actually companies that we think about that much. You know, for me, something like McDonald's is a completely transformed business. Um, for me, a company like Tesco has done a really good job. Um, you know, Sainsbury's, the way they work with Argos is is a pretty good transformation. Um, in a way, there are, there are two things, really. It's one looking at sort of spectacular failures um, and what you learn from that, but also looking at companies that have spent a lot of money and a lot of time doing something that hasn't really worked very well. Um, something I'm sort of struggling with in my own mind is the degree to which that matters. Um, we, we had an environment about five years ago where there was a sense that if you were a, a bank and you were making tons of money um, and then a neobank came into your, your field, um, that you were really going to struggle unless you completely changed how you operated. Um, you know, we had a feeling a while ago that e-commerce retailers would completely destroy physical retailers and that every physical retailer was a kind of sitting duck. Um, and we had that everywhere, whether it was car insurance, whether it was mortgage um, providers, whether it was um, healthcare. We, we had, had this sense the technology companies were going to go and eat everyone's lunch. And we had this sort of disrupt or die sort of ethos that went around everywhere. Um, and it's interesting because about five years later, and when you look at the world now, like it's not obviously true that that's the case. You know, music, you know, record labels make more money than than Spotify. Um, you know, big CPG companies are still making way more money than D2C companies. Um, so there's a very interesting dilemma, I think, now, which is actually, you know, for all the talk of the world changing and for all the talk of, of, of how we have this enormous array of possibilities out there and people are going to steal your business. Um, remarkably few industries have really been disrupted. Um, and that makes it quite hard for someone like me because I don't know whether to be going around saying, you know, let's focus on something else. You know, it doesn't matter that much. And, and I'm sort of reconciling it by saying, actually, you know, just because your airline will probably be fine if it doesn't, you know, move on to a better ticketing platform, you know, doesn't mean there's not a business case for change. You know, just because you're as good as NatWest and Lloyd's and you don't need to worry about Monzo, you know, doesn't mean there isn't a better way to work. And it, it may be that people need to integrate this technology in a much more dramatic and profound level now, not to safeguard their future for the next year, but it may be that actually come 2030, you know, if you're still running at the core on, on sort of cobble technology or if your airline's still built on Sabre, um, then actually the, the amount of, of sort of, workarounds that you have going on are probably so extraordinary that your business might just collapse um you know without anything going on at all yeah it, it be, but i think there's some there's some um there's some great examples um where you, well you, in fact in the book you do ask us to write down these 10 10 companies that you, that you think have transformed or been involved in some level of transformation and then when you and essentially do get what you're saying there you kind of go through those that list of those companies then realize that there's not not necessarily uh a tech, purely technology-related transformation going on there. 
So um, the one the one that was on my list, which then comes up later in the book a few times, is Ryanair, for example, which actually um, has achieved great success by sort of European deregulation and things like this. Not because somehow the technology is particularly amazing. And there's other examples like Wayfair, the company that uh, sells furniture, I guess, just here in the UK. I'm not sure. Um, and Airbnb. It's not because of some sort of incredible technology. It's because the people working for that company uh, have sat down and come up with some good ideas. Yeah, I think um, it, it's often missing from the digital transformation question. But um, you know, actually, it's not. It's often not about technology itself, and more about what it makes possible, and more about sort of culture shift. You know, Airbnb would be a, a very good example where. The idea itself is is pretty um, transformative and it's pretty sort of you know disruptive, but at the same time, it, it's actually much more of a sort of customer driven, empathetic idea um, that is somewhat related to the fact that we've got phones with cameras. Um, it's definitely related to the fact that we've got the internet, um, but there's no real reason you couldn't have created that business in about 2002. Um, you know, it's it's not something that's been made possible by spatial video or, or 5G or something like that. Then we get on to the, in, in the book, it talks about then, it gives a, um, individuals, companies, um, a lot of advice about some fairly sort of practical things which you can do to uh, kind of uh, just get out of uh, where you are. And a, 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 one of the things that stood out for me is not really related to digital transformation, but it was just this term, for example, you know, um, there's a, I could pick a few, but there's one called core competencies where typically, uh, core competencies are, that's something that you go away and think about. And if you or say as an airline, you come up with a sentence, which sort of defines your core competencies and then that's it. And then sort of nothing happens. And what you can encourage people to do is make a list. So it could be, for example, that apart from your core business, such as an airline, it could be that you're say marketing function or your IT function or various other functions is, is a significant uh, differentiator and you've just had great success with that. And what you ask people to do is you know, write that down because that could be something that can really help you make a transformation. I think, um, you know, companies don't do enough thinking. Um, we're in a weird environment now where companies are very keen to implement um, so you see companies very, very, very busy, you know, lots and lots of people in lots of departments, you know, how can we do something with blockchain? How can we get a sort of press release out about AI? Cause it's CES. Um, there's very little deep thinking. There's very little, um, thinking about core strategy. You know, how does your company actually make money? Um, what would the world miss if your company didn't exist? Um, what are you not very good at doing that is a very important thing now or in the future? Um, what are you very good at doing, which actually is somewhat irrelevant now? Um, I think the process of going through some of those really big existential questions is, is essential. Um, but it, it's almost like people don't want to ask the hard questions because it's a bit rude, you know, to accept that having 200 years of cultivating tobacco um, is not that helpful in a world of vaping. Um, but, but I don't, I don't think the companies are helping themselves by avoiding difficult conversations. Um, a, a key aspect of all of this is the sense of sort of blamelessness. You know, if you're, if you're Volkswagen and you're facing Chinese car companies sort of thrusting themselves onto the market and then Tesla coming in, cutting costs, 
you know, you, you could go through a horrible finger pointing exercise of why on earth did we invest so much in diesel and why is our software so crappy? Um, I don't think that's very helpful. You know, I'm sure people made brilliant decisions at the time, given all the information they had. I'm sure people imagined a different future environment where batteries were not going to get as, as cheap as they did. Um, just just focus on your situation now. What are you good at? What are you not good at? What do you need to get better at? How are you going to make money? Um, but I think, I know, somehow business becomes more emotional than we think it is. You know, we think that by accepting that we've made mistakes, we're showing personal weakness. And I don't, I don't think that's true at all. Yeah, you do touch on the uh, as well the, the the and I've been reflecting on this myself about the the feeling of uh, fear and it takes me back to the the very first making things work podcast I did with Ben Johnson where he he, he discussed the the feeling of fear and there's this odd sense where that you do touch upon and I've reflected on as well is what what what's everyone so afraid of because actually uh, the overall uh, work climate is 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 really good now you can work from home a little bit and all these things are possible but somehow and i reflect on when i was younger when i don't think i really didn't really think or worry about anything and so that suddenly now we've got a situation where we're somehow collectively more fearful of, of, uh, of everything when there's in fact no need to be i it's a very um I, i'm very aware that i might be entirely wrong in this space um you know the reality is i've had quite an unusual career and i've got quite an unusual life situation um, and I make money in different ways to other people. Um, and I don't have kids. And if I did have kids, I wouldn't send them to an expensive school because that seems idiotic. Um, and therefore, I, I can only know what it's like to be me. And for me, I, I don't I don't see that hiding um, is, a, is a safe way to run your career. I, I don't see that not asking the difficult question um, is a good way to progress like like all, all i know is to be the person i am which is to be quite lively and rambunctious and, and to say what i think um in a polite way um and my intentions are always very good you know if i, if I ask a difficult question i'm not trying to make the 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 person who stood up look bad i'm asking it because i think it might lead to a better conversation um but i may be completely wrong like like the the world of work out there may be horrendous for people with opinions in most companies um, the world out there may really, really reward people who are safe pairs of hands. Um, and I don't know, I, I think people need to be very mindful of their own personal circumstances and also the culture of the business. Um, but I think way too many businesses are built around compliance. I think way too many businesses are built around um, people doing things they don't really believe in. I think way too many businesses are built around busy work that doesn't matter at all. Um, you know, I work with some really big companies and I'm always amazed. I'm always amazed at how brilliant the people are and how crap the company is. Um, you know, I work with companies that make incredibly bad decisions. Like I work with companies that have, you know, hundred million dollar projects, which are completely idiotic. And from afar, you look at this and think, wow, you know, Every, everyone must be stupid. Like everyone must be um, like have really bad judgment. Everyone must, um, you know, be terrified. There must be some sort of sociopathic dictator. And then you go around and you meet all the people and they're fantastic. They're brilliant. They understand everything. They understand way, way, way more about the industry and the world than I do. And you sort of think, how did this happen? Like, how are all these people working on um, a banking product that really 
is is like inherently stupid. Um, how are all these people working on something that people know is not quite good enough? Um, and that's something that I think I've never really been able to understood because you you just look at it and you think if only there was a way to sort of unlock the potential of all of these spectacularly brilliant people, you know how how can you? I think it means more more difficult conversations. I think it means more debate. You know, I, I sat in a sort of group with um, a very, very, very large bank. I think by far the biggest bank in the sort of Western world. And they were launching a sort of competitor to um, a sort of a peer-to-peer uh, payment app. And literally everything about it was terrible. Um, and, and I just sat in the room and I thought, I wonder what happens if I, you know, sort of stand up and just say, look, enough, everybody. Um you know, we are going to be working really hard on this. We're going to be spending about $100 million in advertising. Um, we're going to have agencies working all the way through the night to try and claim a point of difference. You know, th this product just isn't good enough. And that doesn't mean we're bad people. It doesn't mean we're not good at our jobs. It just means that somehow this isn't working. Um, in that case, I didn't say anything because uh, I was tired um, and I was worried. But uh, I, I would be fascinated to know what does the process of getting people to have the conversations that leads to better products? Like, what, how do you make that happen? Because you sit in plenty of brainstorms and people come up with amazing ideas. You know, like um, it, it's, it seems to be extraordinarily hard to get companies to do things that actually um, should be quite easy for them to do. Yeah, it's having those, those difficult conversations. And, um, but was, was, so was there a point... In, in your career where you you essentially decided to 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 leap and and do what you're doing now and um make this your kind of life's work um, um situation uh, where you you were grappling with these issues and not maybe not saying something no to, to, i mean i people quite often ask me about this and they presume it's some sort of character trait that is a good thing um and I'm not, I'm not too sure. I think it's more of a character flaw, really. Um, I think maybe I'm like a, a tiny bit autistic to the point where if people are saying something that just is illogical, um, it sort of burns me up inside. You know, I think a lot of people are quite happy to sit in a meeting and have people say things that are not particularly true. Um, and, and somehow just the sort of lack of logic sort of beats me up to the point where I kind of have to explode um, so I, I think it's a sort of defect really rather than some sort of super skill. Um, <laughs> I, I think, um, I don't know, I, I would love there to be a, a culture in the world where it's completely appropriate to actually ask really difficult questions. Um, you know, I think, I think it's different in different industries. I think it's different in different departments, but most of my time working in the fields of technology and marketing, you know, it's been a bit impolite to say, you know, where's that data point from? You know, there are 37 studies that show that's not true. Like that, that's sort of considered to be a bit of a personal attack on the presenter. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's, um, I mean, we're moving on to a different thing, but I think there's a weird thing in the modern world where somehow, you know, we're supposed to really like our jobs. We're supposed to really love our colleagues. We're supposed to sort of celebrate birthdays at work. Um, we're supposed to sort of say lovely things to each other. Feedback has to be sort of presented as a sandwich. Um, and I think... I know maybe it's okay to just sort of move up a little bit, you know, to having robust debate, to being adult enough to say this work isn't good enough, um, to being able to have quite sort of strong opinions, 
you know, to present work like you might as an academic where you're expecting people to challenge you, you know, it would be, um, you know, that doesn't mean I want to have an environment where people don't like coming into work. But I, I think it should be more about respect and more about brilliance than it is about sort of comfortableness. Yeah, and it, the nice thing um, that you talk about with respect to culture is it does, um, it, it's, um, you, you encourage people not to maybe treat it as one huge thing where we just need to kind of um, put everyone through a, a sort of thing to try and bring about some sort of cultural change. There's small things you can do um, because that, that, that's almost impossible, but there's things you can do which then will have the effect of at least moving the culture away a little bit. And a lot of it's about about following through on what you on, on what you say was going to happen. So when if you can agree to do quite a small thing as a group together, then that actually happens. That will then have the positively reinforcing effect of moving the the, the mindset of the group away from where it was before. Yeah, I think. Um... We always think that culture is a big thing and therefore it involves like big things and you yeah. know, you should probably have a PowerPoint presentation and there should probably be an all staff meeting and you know, maybe there's a prize. Um, culture is the tiny things. Like culture is the sort of behavior that you let people get away with. Um, culture is the expensive software you use. Like culture is the iPad that's in the reception area, not the person. Um, you know, it's made up of sort of billions of tiny moments. Um, and I think there's a sort of a momentum that happens with culture change where you start um, celebrating behaviors and reinforcing them. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure most people who are listening have, have, have sort of seen the work of, of Patty McCord um, from Netflix, you know, the sort of author of the, the culture deck. And I don't think Netflix is a culture that most companies should seek to emulate um, I, I don't think that, I think there's a level of sort of aggression. I think there's a level of impatience. I think there's an element of extreme meritocracy, which is probably a little bit um, uncomfortable for most people. And I, I don't think I really agree with, but there's a lot in it that's fascinating. You know, this, you know, even something like the expense policy. Um, you know, I've, I've spent countless hours where um, I've loved working my nuts off and I've loved flying you know, late at night to Helsinki to help sort of rescue a presentation at the weekend. And I've loved it. Um, and then you have a sort of process where you have to try and expense a Mars bar from a, a mini bar, you know, because you didn't have time to go out for dinner and you were just about to collapse, you know, and, and then you have to sort of fight for the right for a Mars bar, uh, which is a sort of lesser known Beastie Boys song. Um, and you sort of think, you know, how, how have we sort of created an environment where was so obviously not valued, you know, where it's sort of assumed that we make bad decisions about confectionery. Um, and things like that really bother me. So I think um, just the act of, um, I mean, another thing would be support staff, actually. Um, you know, I'm aware if you go to see like a top back surgeon, you know, there's sort of five or six people you go through before you get to speak to them. And they're all basically protecting the time of this amazing back surgeon, you know, with their wonderful fingers. Um, but we don't operate like that in business. You know, like if you're an incredible strategist, you know, you're still there sort of, you know, um, collecting things from the copying machine and you're still there sort of begging to get the earlier flight that's a bit cheaper. Um, I, I think it would be great to have cultures which really value the need for people to have time to think 
um, an environment in which they can be quite clear um, and an environment in which they're really respected and um, appreciated. Yeah, and I think the, the you touch on it as well that the, the that that environment and that that group of people can uh, extend beyond the organisation because or companies you have the kind of org chart there. The, the example you give in the book is is where AstraZeneca decided to sort of partner with universities um, to do some of the research, which is probably a much more effective way and sort of a lower risk way of doing it, where they just did everything themselves with everyone employees of that company. And the same applies, I think, to uh, made me think about technology partners. A lot of companies wouldn't put <clears throat> their technology partners kind of on the org chart as when they're explaining how the group of that group of people is not just the actual full-time members of staff, but it could include yourself or myself, for example. Yeah, we need um, we need way more energy. You know, I think. Um... A weird thing's happened with collaboration, where people think collaboration is this sort of comfortable process um, that's quite nice, and where you get people that are a little bit different. You know, perhaps someone from accounts is in the room, you know, and you say that all ideas are good ideas, and you write everything down on on a sort of flipboard, and everyone's happy. Um, we we really need to sort of relish the energy of different perspectives. You know, to to have a kind of sixteen year old that set up a drop shipping business, you know mining search data to find out what type of plants were trending to send them out in real time you know that's going to be a very helpful person to have in the room you know if you're doing a project for l'oreal um you know to have a sort of hacker that sort of broke through the cybersecurity systems you know and have them in a meeting talking about not banking but i don't know like um hotels you know to have a sort of um uh police inspector to have a uh, a really old person, you know, and I'm sort of deliberately saying that in a sort of vague way, just have a really sort of wise person, you know, someone that says we've seen all this before. Um, we need all these different vantage points into the process. And I don't think we do that very much. I mean, I've tried making it happen a lot of times and it's been very hard to get people to want to do it um, because I think we're aware it's a bit hard. It's like it's a bit weird to have different opinions you know it's a bit weird if you've got someone who's lived in china for the last 20 years you know telling you it doesn't work like that in china like it's it's way more comfortable to have someone that nods um so i think we need to sort of learn to love this process of like true diversity in all ways um and to accept that it's not easy but but just because it's not easy doesn't mean you're doing it wrong um it, it probably means you're doing it in a really effective way yeah, i've had a, a, a couple of experiences where where we've been in that situation where I think we did have that diversity and uh, still still speak with uh, the person I was working for every couple of weeks for, for, a, for a catch up. And um, and it was, as you say, it was uh, extremely difficult. However, we, we did end up with, with real results. And then when I look back on it now, um, it's significantly more rewarding than, than, than lots of other things. It's, um, but he, he often, he was often, um, Sort of chided by his own boss because he couldn't understand his own boss could understand why uh, he didn't sack us all because we were we were all we were all you know not backwards in coming forwards as it were and um, you know and it, cause, but it, because other other people in the organisation really wondered what was what on earth was going on because there was so much uh, you know in a bit of positive constructive pro professional way people really were putting putting their own views out there and we'd end up it didn't necessarily feel like it at the time. But then 
what we did end up with with it's a much better result than if we just like you say kind of gone along with it and well whoever is responsible for that bit just gets, takes care of that bit but of course nothing works at all unless we all work together it's, it's all about the energy you know what can you do to create energy in the room yes so um can you let, no, let's just talk about well there's one more part which um there's a cultural part where we talk about that but then there's also uh, some really interesting things where you um, talk about uh, creating a mission and, and sort of vision for your company, which again is is something that can actually result in things happening rather than an exercise in itself of that becomes kind of wordsmithing, which so often then uh, it just constrains our thoughts so much that we just can't really think anymore because we've gone through this huge exercise of coming up with a couple of sentences, but then nothing really happens, and you really you really come up with some nice ideas just to, just to get people out of that way of thinking um in, in the process of, sort of research in the book I, I was always quite surprised when i sort of felt like i discovered something that was a bit interesting and hadn't really heard that much before um and i was i was really amazed at how few companies really have a sort of vision for the future now you know obviously if you go on a company's website they have a vision for the future. You know, if you're a sort of Chinese um, phone maker, there'll be a line, you know, to make the future better or something. If you go to a place like CES or if you go to Mobile World Congress or if you see people talk at conferences, you know, lots of companies will have a kind of vision 2040 and, you know, there'll be sort of flying cars. Um, there'll, there'll be all sorts of like of the trappings of a future vision. Um, but I, I, I don't think there's... There haven't been many sort of adults in the room. You know, there's been a lot of copy um, sort of wordsmiths and copywriters. There's been a lot of um, filmmakers. There's been a lot of sort of interns. Um, I don't I don't feel that companies really take this very seriously. You know, if you if you were to say to, um, I don't even know if they're around anymore, if you were to say to Debenhams, you know, what is your, you know, how are you going to make money in 2040? You know, if you said to Marks and Spencers, if you said to, um, if you said to, uh, auto insurance company if you said to a bank if you said to um a holiday uh, making company if you said to um almost every industry i think there would kind of be this sense that you know the future is a bit unknowable and you know that's not really sort of sensible work um but that seems a bit strange to me like it like it seems to me to be odd that people don't really have um, any sort of parameters on which they're making making their decisions. You know what what's going to happen if you're um if you're a sort of CPG company making beauty products. You know what's going to happen with sort of regulation around um, Azempic and Wegovy. Like if you're a food company, um, what can you sort of predict happening with people's lifestyles and how they think about health? Like these these are not um these are not stupid conversations they're not unknowable conversations they're not unhelpful conversations and you won't know the answers but you'll start to get some really good questions um you'll start to figure out what you definitely don't think will happen um and then from that sort of vague roadmap um you can sort of create some sort of gateways that are a bit earlier on you know again it's more about questions and answers so you know be thinking about different ways that you can make money um, be thinking about different ways that you can think about costs, be thinking about different sorts of talent that you might need in your business in the future. Um, and also you can spend your life not on the front foot, like pro proactively sort of attacking everything, but 
not on the back foot where you're shocked by everything that happens. Um, but it, but it's weird to me that companies don't seem to, they don't, I don't know if they don't want to, or if they think of it as, you know, a bit superfluous. Um, but for whatever reason, it doesn't happen. Yeah. I find myself having, having read the book is, is it, is it the extent to which the language can, can just prevent you from th even thinking of anything when all that you really need to do is something relatively simple, you, but you think, well, maybe there's, there's some other expert out there that can, that knows this, or there's, there's, or there's some amazing technology out there and, and companies that are adopting that technology, the ones that are just going to really go places and we're just sort of stuck here. But in fact, all you have to do is, is just sort of write down the things you're good at. And most people in most companies, they know what their company does, what the market is, who their customers are, what they really ought to do in the future to make sure they're more successful. Um, but somehow it, there's a perception that maybe other people are doing that and, and well, we can't really do that when in fact there's no reason yeah. at all. I mean, one of the things I love about what I do is I work with very different types of companies. Um, and it, it's amazing because you always get this sense of, oh, you know, one, people always think that other companies are much better than they are. You know, so there's always this sense that if you work at Apple, you know, then every single person working there is doing the most perfect job you can imagine. And, you know, yep. everything sort of works swimmingly. Uh, there's always this sense that you're in an industry that's particularly hard. You know, oh, we can't do that here because we're regulated. You know, we can't do that here because we've got like, um, you know, we're publicly listed. You know, there's always this sense that somehow you're in an unfair situation. Um, and there's always this sense that you can't really learn that much from other companies because they're so different. Um, I, f I find that very strange, you know. Again, the these things are not necessarily about a very linear and direct process that leads to the right answers that are cast in stone and genius and worshipped. It's, it's much more about having the conversations and knowing the questions that you need to ask other people, um, knowing the, the parameters that you shouldn't be fixing, but you should be you know, looking at later on, um, knowing when a good time to reopen conversations um, might be. I don't know. I think um, for me, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with the number of things that are not being said, the number of conversations that are not being had. Um, and even if I knew they were being had and it didn't change anything else, um, it would still make me feel a bit better. Yeah. Is that, is that how you, is, is that your, your main sort of thought process going into cl your clients about uh, to sort of unlock them in that way? Um, what I do is very different depending on the, the client. And right. I think um, I have to be mindful of what they really want. Um, and these things are very personal, you know. So most people that want to work with me do so in knowing the kind of person I am and knowing that, um, you know, it's a bit of a sort of cheesy thing to say, but I'm almost like a sort of personal trainer for people and, yeah. and companies where, you know, most consulting companies are kind of like loving mums that sort of go around saying you're doing everything brilliantly. You know, I'm around on the phone whenever you need a nice chat, I'm here. Um, and obviously they'll, they'll sort of sell them things and they'll sort of tell them to, you know, embark on a Silicon Valley tour or to, you know, embrace the new wave of, of, of sort of technology. Um, but it's it's mainly based around sort of love, and I think for me, I, I'm based around good questions and and getting people to challenge themselves a bit more, um, and not being afraid to be quite honest about the reality of the situation, um, with a full realization 
that the questions are being asked entirely from good intentions. You know, my, my job is to get people to a better place. And that doesn't mean that people should love every conversation. And it doesn't mean that people should um, be excited about everything. But it means that people will acknowledge that the intention is to get people to a much better place. And that might mean quite hard work. Yeah. I really like uh, your point about about good questions because there is this uh, there is this underlying sort of humility in the book where you talk about well you don't it's not necessarily about correct answers it's about um, good good questions and I think right back from when we're all at school and everything we're all sort of uh, drilled in coming up with the correct answer to everything and th that 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 results in us thinking well there must be I need to hire someone who's got the right answer or if I don't know it myself when in fact it's about thought-provoking questions, you know, and, and uh, constructive questions, but, but provoking yeah. them, provoking nonetheless. It's, um, I, I find it fascinating, actually. I'm working on quite a few projects in the moment where, in all honesty, I, I absolutely don't know the right answer. Um, yeah. And, and you can you can see that the entire industry could go in very different ways. Um, and I think sometimes it's good to know what you definitely think you know the answer to. Um, and to know what you definitely don't know the, what is the right answer to, um, but it doesn't matter. Um, and to what extent is, you know, the process of future-proofing um, about knowing what kind of conversations to carry on having and what things to be looking out for. Um, because there are, there are a number of industries that are going through quite significant shifts at the moment. And I think people that claim to know all the answers and probably aren't thinking hard enough about it. Yeah, yeah, and you, you talk as well about um, about using principles rather than you know, we get sort of stuck behind uh, policies and procedures and what have you. When yeah. um, principles can be a great way of unlocking that because if you've agreed on the principles, then when you come up with something that's aligned with the principles, you must know you're kind of yeah roughly in the right spot. A lot of companies don't really have good procedures in by which to make decisions. Actually, like um. Again, I think the importance of a vision and the importance of principles is that most decisions become quite easy. Um, I think it's a bit like a sort of Alice in Wonderland quote about if you don't know where you're going, you know, you don't know whether you're on the right path. Um, something like that. I think, um, yeah, when, when companies don't really have a strong sense of roadmap, it's very hard for them to ever make a good or a bad decision because it's all in respect to nothing. Yeah. But then... It's it's uh, I'm sort of giving it away for the for the uh, for the the readers of your book, but the, the last sentence of the book is is all, all we have is now, and it, well, it's actually not really giving it away because it's actually mentioned a bit earlier as well, isn't it? But um, I think it's a it's a nice way to just think about things because again, we we all get caught up in in uh, thinking about the, the future and our I don't know, retirement or all, all these sorts of things, and as if as if there's something in the future where everything can just wait. When actually, if we if we act today to uh, start the process of change and transformation, that th even just thinking that way is a great starting point for uh, of great things happening. Yeah, I think um, th this came about because there. Are, I spent most of the last sort of ten years writing decks about the future, and there's always this sense that in a year's time, you know, five G will be here. Um, you know, in two years' time, people have screens on their wrist, and there's a kind of sense that at some point we're going to have the tools that we need. Um, and I think people use that as an excuse for inaction. Um, 
And I think, and again, I'm, I'm sounding a bit sort of unfair, but I, I think a lot of people are really driven by a need to have safety and to get home on time um, and to not be worried about things that are going on. And I, I, I sort of wonder how helpful that is. Um, and it's quite sort of provocative and it's quite naive, but, you know, I'd like everyone to think of a good day as being one where they were quite proud of something they made happen. Um, you know, I'm not saying that they should have put a rocket into space, but, you know, maybe they'd help sort of reduce the number of bagels they're given out on a Friday for free. Um, maybe they'd help sort of change uh, expensive policy or maybe they've helped bring on board a new supplier that's a bit more interesting. I think people should be much more driven by an immediate sense of pride in what they've accomplished. Um, and I think that's the thing that can really sort of set alight our careers um, and create a lot more sort of happiness that's out there. So that that's something I sort of firmly believe in. You know, not, not this sort of um, paranoia and not this energy with people running around like headless chickens, but just like a clear um, and positive and sort of proactive sense of the change that we can all bring about today. Yeah, because you can actually, as you say, we can actually call that transformation as well. It, it can be, um, it doesn't have to be some big thing that's uh, been, been uh, where there's some sort of PowerPoint deck with some, you know, yeah. or whatever. Transformation can be so a series of relatively small things that then gets you started on uh, on a path to moving away from where you were. So it can be, yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't have to be this this huge thing that other people are doing. It's it's within all our gift to to make things happen. No, I I, I think people get quite overwhelmed by transformation. They, they sort of see it as this big thing, and then people don't make any steps towards it. I think um, there's a there's a sort of miracle to momentum, you know. So a new policy that helps people stay in airbnbs rather than hotels you know can lead to a new policy that allows people to bring in people from different industries for a day and that leads to a new you know departmental meeting every month that allows people to have lively conversations and that leads to a big idea that changes the future of the business all right well thanks very much tom this is so much there um uh, so much food for thought there uh, the book's called Digital Darwinism. The second edition is out, and I really, really enjoyed reading it. And it's been a, a, something of a sort of game changer for me. And I think it will be for lots of the listeners as well. So thanks again for, for joining us today. And, and what's the best way of getting in touch with you? Uh, probably LinkedIn is, is the best way to sort of see my stuff. Um, so I think it's Tom F. Goodwin is my profile there. Um, or if you just uh, go to my website, all we have is now.co. And there's more about my business there as well. Okay, great. And you can find me uh, on on Twitter, uh, X, and uh, on LinkedIn as well, Duncan Pryor. And you can catch up with all the episodes on the website, the BML website, or by searching for the Making Things Work podcast on your preferred audio app. Um, if you've got a business leader who you would like uh, and you think could be a good fit for the show, let us know. We'll be back this time next month with the next episode. So until then, thanks very much. And again, thanks, Tom, uh, for, uh, for agreeing to join the podcast today. It's just been fantastic to talk to you. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Duncan.